0: The book of Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter number 11. And as we begin, I want us to consider the subject before we even read the text. I don't often do that, but I want to do that this morning because I think it helps us set the proper foundation for what the Apostle Paul is going to write to us about this morning. When we think about the word praise, praise often is defined by many as an outward expression. And in many ways, that is true. Uh, Praise can often be seen, praise can be heard. Uh, We hear praise in our singing. We can even hear praise in our reading of scripture. We can hear praise in our prayer. But we need to understand that praise of God is still there whether those outward expressions are present or not. In other words, is there still praise If it can't be seen, if it can't be heard, is there still praise? And the answer is, of course, yes. But what do we praise? Or better yet, why do we praise? Or even better, who do we praise? Those questions are the things that the Apostle Paul, as he has been bringing to us in chapter number 11, he is bringing this to a conclusion. He's bringing this to a climactic end where he is going to tell us, now because of what you know, There ought to be praise. Weeks ago, when we began this chapter, and I gave you an outline of the sections, we're going to get to the final section, which way back then I entitled a doxology of praise. Now, the word doxology in and of itself is a suggestion of praise. But before we get there, Paul has one really concluding thought that's more of a summary of what we've been looking at before we get to this doxology, If you look with me in Romans chapter number 11, verse 30, and down through 36, this leads us to this final concluding point of chapter 11, down to the ending of the chapter when God uh, is praised through what Paul has been teaching. Verse 30, he says, for as ye in times past have not believed God. Now remember in our context, this is a reference to the Gentiles. He said, in the past, you have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. There is the Jews' unbelief. Even so have these, the Jews, also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Now, this is where the doxology of praise begins in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now remember, in this whole chapter, even though the Jews had been blinded and at the current time were being punished, the stubbornness of the Jews in their unbelief was not given so that the Gentiles would hate Israel or would be arrogant towards them, Paul reminds us that the blinding of the Jews was the doorway in which the eyes of the Gentiles would be opened. And again, we spent some time on this last week about how we ought to be thankful as Gentiles today that the blindness of the Jews is the very avenue as to why our eyes are open today, why we are believers, why we are even in Christ. But now Paul reminds us of what he had concluded a couple of weeks ago when he says that through the blindness and through the blessing and the favor of the Gentiles, the Jews would get to a place where they would become so enraged with the mercy that God was showing to the Gentiles that their eyes would now be opened and they would become partakers of the mercy of God. We know that day's coming. We've mentioned that the greatest revival in all of human history is going to be the day that the Jewish nation of Israel opens its eyes as Christ has opened them to see the glory of Christ as the Messiah. The Jews and Gentiles all are saved the same way. They're saved only by the free mercy and the grace of God. Now, again, you don't have to be around here long to know that we make a big deal about the free grace and free mercy of God, and we do that unapologetically. If God had left all mankind to himself, all mankind would be lost. If we were left to our own sin nature, if we were left to our own desires, we would be without Christ had it not been for the free mercy and the free grace of God. God is building his church. All three hymns this morning we sang were about the body of the church or church fellowship or the bringing together. Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection is the bridge that is bringing all mankind into one body. Today, we know that there is an invisible body or an invisible body of Christ, but there is also the demonstration of that in local churches. When we sing praise, when we give praise, we are praising as people who are part of more than just a local body in Springfield, Ohio. We are part of the body of Christ. Millions and millions of people. Some people say praise can only be in a large crowd. Some people say praise is more effective when it's more people praising God. And I would tell you no, praise is not determined by the number. Praise is determined by the people. Have those people truly been redeemed by the free grace and free mercy of God? Because if you have, you'll have praise. Some of our greatest praise is not among the thousands. Some of our greatest praise is when we're by ourselves. We say, but nobody hears my praise. Uh, The right person hears your praise. God hears it. We often say God's more impressed with a large group of people giving praise. No, God is impressed never. God is not impressed with anything we offer. It is simply a response. The blinding of the Jews led to the opening of the eyes of the Gentiles. But let's remember something. The Gentile eyes were not always open either. Let's go back to our text. And in verses 30 through 32, I want us to look at the indescribable electing mercy of God the indescribable electing mercy of God. Paul writes, for as in times past, you have not believed God. He says, there's a time you Gentile, you did not believe God. But now you have obtained mercy through their unbelief. There was a time that God dealt with the Gentiles the very same way he dealt with Israel. The Gentiles were blinded at one time. You realize there's a point in human history, and you can see it even in the Bible, where the Gentile nations were not even, eyes were not even open to the truth of a coming Savior. You see, God had not dealt with the Jews any differently than he had dealt with the Gentiles in times past. Now, there is some repetition here. Paul is repeating what he's already said. As a good writer, and especially Paul, this is more than just being a good writer. This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is reminding us yet again that we need repetition. Oftentimes we think, I heard it once, I've heard it twice, I've got it. But today, if you do not look at the electing mercy of God as something that is infinitely indescribable, the question is, do you fully understand what it is to be in the body of Christ? Because at one time, the Jews and the Gentiles alike were both blinded. They obtained mercy through the Jews' disobedience. Mercy is now being shown to the Gentiles because of the Jews' unbelief. Paul had stated many times how the unbelief of the Jews was the instrument of salvation. You and I are recipients of the salvation that God provides through the blinding of the nation of Israel. Today, that nation is still, for the most part, blinded. And you see in verse 31, Paul says, "...even so have these also now not believed." Even though your eyes now, Gentiles, now you are into the fold. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are part of the body of Christ. They still will not believe. But here's the hope he gives. That through mercy, they also may obtain mercy. Paul is stating very simply this, that by them witnessing the mercy that God has extended to you, the Gentiles, they will want to be a part of that mercy, and they will want that mercy to be extended upon them. Now, what is it to not believe? Often we say not believe is just not to choose to accept. But do you realize that unbelief, according to the scriptures, is an act of disobedience? In other words, for you not to believe today in Jesus Christ as the Messiah is an act of disobedience. It is rebellion to reject God. It is rebellion to turn away from it. Unbelief is disobedience. All throughout the New Testament, we find this principle that disobedience to the truth is the act of rejecting the truth. In other words, today, if you are an unbeliever, it is because you are rejecting truth. Truth is sitting right before you. No man will ever be able to say, I never heard the truth. The truth is seated right before you today. If you are lost today, you are not in Christ today. If you have not been born again today, if you have not been regenerated, if you've not been converted, the truth is standing right at your doorstep. And again, we often want to say, but I refuse to believe. The Gentiles obtained mercy through the Jews' unbelief. The unbelief of the Jews was the very occasion of why the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. You receive mercy because the Jews refuse that mercy, but there is coming a day when they will have their eyes open to the truth. Look at verse 32 as we continue this thought about the indescribable electing mercy of God. For God hath concluded all in unbelief. Now, in this literal sense, the word concluded, in its literal sense here, means to shut up together. It means to put them in one place and say they're all one shut up together, contained together. There's also a metaphorical thought here that Paul is writing about. And this, this metaphor here is literally to, to be delivered over to the power of. In other words, what has God done? God has concluded by putting all together those who are in unbelief to put them together in one place to deliver them over to the power of something. Of course, the power of that is the power of unbelief. When we think about it this morning, we understand that God in his dealing with us, according to his grace, he has ordered all things. He's ordered the very, uh, our very lives even as we sit here today. Your life is ordered by God. Your life and its path is ordered by God. There are no random steps. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't make free will choices. Uh, God is not going to providentially hinder you, and I'm not going to recommend this, and I don't mean to be cute this morning, but God is not going to providentially hinder you from walking in front of a bus. If you walk out in front of a bus you're going to get hit by that bus. And you're not going to be able to say, well, if God is sovereign, then God will make that bus not hit me. That's where the confusion comes, where if God is sovereign, then there is no free will. We make no choices. And that's a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of sovereignty. If you step in front of the bus, you chose to step in front of the bus. If you choose to unbelieve today in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you are held accountable for that unbelief. Don't blame the sovereignty of God for your unbelief today. You're responsible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. So what has God done? Well, God gave over the Gentiles first. Then he gave over the Jews. What is he giving them over to? You got to remember that God, as he deals with man, the agency of God or the, the directions of God, by God giving man over to unbelief is a punishment for something. It's a punishment for man's sin. It is consistent. Sin is consistent with our free will. You realize we have the ability to choose, but apart from God, we will choose that which is sinful by nature. So when a sinful man, a person who is outside the body of Christ, chooses to do sinful things, we ought not be surprised by that choice. We find ourselves often looking at the television or on our computers and we say that. How can somebody be so depraved? But then people blame God for it and they say, Why doesn't God stop them? The giving over or the giving up to is God giving man over to his nature. What is man's nature? It's to unbelieve. Now, if your eyes were not brought to see, if you're not given the ears to hear, you will remain in your nature. Your nature is God concluding that all in unbelief. Whether Jew or Gentile, God, in his agency, is not the cause of their sin. He doesn't cause it, but often and many times he gives deserving man over to what he is. Some people say it's not fair that God gives man over to sin. If God is the orderer and the sovereign over all things, then God has the decision and has the choice to who he gives over to what they are. Now, what does that mean for the gospel? Like we say every single week. That means you and I have no interest in exactly what God is doing other than this. Preach the gospel to every creature. We have no right to tell God who to give over or who not to give over. As a matter of fact, if your prayer life consists of, Lord, give that person over to the devil, I would tell you, you need to learn how to pray differently. If your desire is that you you get on your knees before God and you say, God, every evil, wicked person, I just wish you would just wipe them out, give them over to their own sin. I would tell you, you misunderstand the gospel. You ought to be begging God to not give them over to what they deserve and gloriously save them like he saved you. That's what you should be praying. But the problem is, is we want to be God. Now today you might say right to that response, Preacher, I have no desire to be God. We're all gods. We think we are. We think we have control. We think any thing in our life that you actually have control over you realize you control nothing now control is an illusion control can often be defined by the things that feel as if I have got it that's what happens in our salvation we begin to say I've got it man begins to say I'll wait until another day to believe I'll choose another day to believe and yet that day never comes because something steps in the way. Sometimes it's death. Sometimes it is uh, just a hindrance of some other sort. But notice what Paul says here. He says, God has shut them up, that they're all, he's concluded that all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, they're all in unbelief. Left alone, that's what we are, unbelievers. God could have concluded this, folks. Folks. And if you haven't taken time just to thank God that He opened your eyes recently and didn't turn you over to what you deserved, which was unbelief, that ought to be the first subject of your prayer today. Because He didn't have to. He didn't have to open your eyes. He doesn't have to open the eyes of your loved one. He doesn't have to do any of those things. Why? Because He's God. Why is this important? Because Paul is leading us to what the reason of praise is about. Praise is for a God who's done that. Praise is about a God who has not left you to yourself, but has opened your eyes and has shown mercy upon you. Notice in the second half of verse 32, the Bible says that he might have mercy upon all. Paul shows that God had dealt the same with the Gentile and the Jew. They were both standing on the same ground. So as we've been studying in this chapter, if you look at the Jewish person and you say arrogantly, listen, I can't believe those fools won't believe in God. You are in danger yourself. Are you even really a believer? Because what it should be is a response of praise. Praise. Not of pride, not of arrogance. Both the Jew and the Gentile alike. The word all there doesn't mean that every single person who's ever lived is going to be in glory. But it means people from every walk of life, every nation, every tongue. It's not an American heaven. It's not a South American heaven. It's not a Russian heaven. It's one body. You're going to be surprised. And that's probably a bad word because you're not going to be surprised in a sense in glory. The nationalities and even in ourselves where we feel a little bit more supreme. No, we're not any more supreme than any other nation. But God does what? That he might have mercy upon all. Paul shows God has dealt with light the same way of the Gentile and the Jew. The Gentile was blinded at one time, the Jew still blinded to this day. They stood on the very same ground. Both were dependent upon the mercy and the sovereignty of God. They were the same and equally helpless. But yet God determined to have mercy upon them. To bring all, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, Jews as well as Gentiles, into the fold of Christ. And that's what's happening today. The free grace and the free free mercy of God a recipient of that rather, never seeks to confine God's favor to one individual person or one individual group. If you really have received free grace and free mercy, you don't want it confined. You don't want an American gospel. You don't want an African gospel. You want the gospel to be preached and proclaimed to all that all might receive it and all might believe it. We think, well, I don't have a problem with that. We all look at people through our own lens. You and I could view the same person, view them in exactly the same picture, the exact same context, and we would have a different opinion about them. I guarantee it. Even if that person is known to both of us, we will each look at that person through our own eyes and our own perspective and we will value that person based upon how we see them. It's human nature. There are some people that one person, everyone says, oh, who, who wouldn't like that person? Others say, how can you like that person? My point is this, God is not looking to a lens of determining by what he thinks about them. God is not viewing mankind through the lens that you and I view mankind through. Our lens is faulty. It is fallible. Sometimes the very best in people, we see the very worst in people because that's our sin nature. That's what we are. And we're all guilty of this. Have you ever heard someone say about another person, they always see the good in people? That's a great character trait. But sometimes the goodness that they see is not goodness at all. Only God is good. When we study in a little while, Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd, he was not just saying, hey, I'm one that always has the good in somebody's heart. He was saying something that only he is. Remember the rich young ruler, Jesus asked him the question, he said, why do you call me good? He didn't even know what the definition of good is. When it comes to God, we're talking about perfection. I'm the perfect shepherd. I'm the perfect God. That's why I'm worthy to be praised because of all that I am. This indescribable electing mercy of God leads us into the final section in verse 33. Verse 33, we'll title it The Incomprehensible Eternal Riches of God. The Incomprehensible Eternal Riches of God. This verse begins this doxology. It talks about the riches. The word depth, it's an interesting word. We measure things in depth and we find a bottom. The riches of Christ do not have a bottom. You've heard the word abyss before. The word abyss means something that the bottom has not ever been found. Now that's not the right word to describe the riches of Christ, why? Because there is no bottom. They are immeasurable. The depth of the riches both, he separates these two, of wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't combine them. He separates them. Now what has Paul been teaching in chapter 11 and even in the previous chapters? He has been teaching doctrines on redemption. He's been presenting the doctrine of justification, of sanctification, of the certainty of salvation election, calling, the rejection of the Jews, the restoration of the Jews, the mercy. In view of all of those things, Paul suddenly breaks out into a doxology of praise. Literally, look at your Bible. The last phrase, that he might have mercy upon all, that's the end of it. Oh, the depth. It's the greatest ending that you could possibly fathom. Because here, Paul reminds them, Jew and Gentile alike, don't forget the wisdom and the knowledge that brought you into the fold of Christ. Don't forget it. The display of mercy that God has poured out upon you and poured out upon all that are in Christ. Don't ever forget that mercy. That mercy is without question. Paul doesn't write as a writer who hopes all this turns out. He writes with certainty. He writes with conviction. He writes as a person who says, all of these things only lead me to one conclusion. Now what's interesting is the way that the Scriptures are laid out. When you get into chapter 12 of Romans, you move out of, so to speak, doctrine. And don't miss this into practical Christian living. You realize there is no right believing living if you don't have the right doctrine. You're not gonna live like a child of God should live if you don't understand the mercy of God. You're not gonna understand what it is. The very first verse of chapter 12 is going to tell you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You won't even know what that means if you don't know what the grace of God and the mercy of God is. I've heard all kinds of foolish illustrations for what that verse means. I can't wait to get to it. Because this is something that is not just something you get up one day and look in the mirror and say, I'm presenting my body to Christ today. This is something that is a direct result of being a recipient of the grace and the mercy of God. You can't fake it. You can't fake praise either. Listen, when we take a hymn book, if you can't truly sing with praise, you really need to examine whether your heart is even a believing heart. If the words on a hymn or the words in the scripture, I don't care what scripture you go to, if you find yourself bored and uninterested, there's a problem. There's a serious problem. Why? Because all of this book gives us reason to praise. All of this is about the mercy of God. All about this is the riches of God. Paul, as he cries out, notices, says, "Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God!" exclamation point." Now again, I'm not saying praise has to be loud and bold and screaming and shouting. But that tells us there's an emphasis on here. This is not Paul, something Paul's just nonchalant about. He says, "Oh, the depth. The bottom I can't find. The riches of his wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Riches could also be understood, not only his wisdom, but the total riches of God, especially the mercy or the goodness of God that he has shown towards us. How inconceivable it is to think about the extent of his riches. You can't even imagine He says the wisdom and knowledge. You know, in redemption, when a soul is saved, both God's wisdom and both God's knowledge are on display. When you got saved, God's wisdom and God's knowledge was on display. All knowledge. That means God has all knowledge. He looks at the the, the creature. He looks at the person and he sees their circumstances. He sees who they are. He sees what they are, and yet he redeems them. This knowledge, this wisdom, all that he has. Wisdom is everything needed. Now, don't miss this. To have all knowledge and all wisdom is to have everything needed to accomplish his divine purpose. God sees and knows things you do not know. And how easily we forget that. We get a little series of letters after our name in theology, and we say, I'm a PhD in theology. We're nothing even close. That's what man has said. This is how much you know. Could I tell you, you could have 50 PhDs and you still would not be able to find the bottom of the wisdom and knowledge and the riches of God. I recently read a, a post from somebody, and by the way, I've taken a break from social media, so if you don't see me, it's intentional. I saw a man boasting the other day. He said, praise God, I'm getting ready to read the Bible through for the 200th time. That's great. Are you getting anything? Or is it just a check? 200 times! I'd rather you read it one time and spend so much time in it that you get to the end and you say, listen, I still have not even scratched the surface of knowing who God is. The problem here." is that we compare and we set our standard not upon what God tells us he is, but what man says he knows about God. In other words, you think the knowledge of God comes through the person that you think knows the most. Get all that? Not about what God says about himself. Now, if we take that to heart, what do we really know about God? Well, according to what the Apostle Paul says, it's unsearchable. Unsearchable are his judgments. What are his judgments? Now we think about judgment and we think casting an unsafe person into hell, uh, allowing bad things to happen. The context here, judgments, although those things are true, God's judgment is more of the way we think about how decisions are made. In other words, what God does, what God purposes or what God decrees, what God does judicially How he deals with man, hold on to your pew, takes in no account to what man thinks, does, or says. In other words, God doesn't do it because of what you think. God's not who he is because of what you want him to be. God's decrees, his purposes, are all according to something that we cannot even search out. But also goes one step further. How he deals with man. For example, how he's dealt with the Jews. How he's dealt with the Gentiles. What is fully comprehended here cannot be comprehended by just our mental faculties. You and I cannot just come to a conclusion and says, okay, here's what it is, and I'm going to give it to you in an outline, point A, point B, point C. We preachers try this. We try to put it in a package that we can get full understanding and fully grasp it. And there are helps, but we still don't have it. We still don't have it. His unsearchable ways or his judgments, Paul does distinguish between that wisdom and that knowledge. But he also distinguishes between judgments. And look what he says in the end of verse 33. And his ways are past finding out. So now we have God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's judgments, and God's ways. Modern theology lumps all these into one thing, God's ways. Paul separates them. They're not all the same. God's ways and judgments and his wisdom and his knowledge are not all incorporated into one easy to take capsule. It's the reason why shallow preaching continues to take hold is because it's all people can take. They can only take the milk of the word because God's ways are truly past finding out. There are days you you are going to go home and you're going to have to wonder and you're going to have to beg God to show you and you're going to have to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you discernment because you're going to leave and you're going to say, I have no idea what the preacher said today. It's not the preacher's job to give you understanding. It's the preacher to declare what God has said. It's God's job is going to give you understanding. It's not even the preacher's job to give you an easy outline that you can understand. This is just to try to help us even to get a glimpse of this. That's all it's for. But God, in his ways, we can't can't limit God to our own understanding. What is fully incomprehensible is because God is infinite in his being. We don't even know what something is to be infinite. All we know is infinite means forever, but it it means more than that. It's not just infinite. It has no beginning. It has no ending. We have no no understanding of that because we're not infinite. You have an exact birth date. You have an exact death date. Even if they change the calendars, you still will have lived a finite life. You realize it's limited. It will not go beyond the boundaries of what God has ordained and set, it won't go a minute more. God is infinite makes God incomprehensible. It makes him nearly impossible to understand why is God doing what he's doing? Why is he dealing with the Jews? Why is he dealing with the Gentiles this way? He is an inexhaustible source of knowledge. And then in verse 34, Paul moves into the infinite excellence. The infinite excellence of the nature of God. These questions he asked. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? That verse basically just confirms everything he just said in the previous verses. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Isn't it interesting Paul doesn't say, I do. Now listen, if the Apostle Paul doesn't get the mind of the Lord, I'm going I'm to step out on a limb and say this. None of you do, including myself. If Paul didn't get it, I am, I am sadly amused When I hear people try to extend almost as if they know more than what the Apostle Paul knew. And I just want to say in my flesh, and I do in my flesh often, are you kidding me? This man died for the cause of the gospel. You've done nothing. You've done absolutely nothing worthy of that. That's a man who believes it. That's a man who died for it. That's a man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes and he doesn't say, I, I got it. He says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Now, what is he doing here by this question? This, this question, the mind of the Lord or hath been his counselor, is, it is a subtle rebuke. It's not just a question hypothetical, it's a rebuke. So why does he do that? Because he knows that the mind of the wicked man is going to be tempted to have an answer. There's really three things that he does here. Man, number one, because God is above all, it is foolish to measure him according to human standards. You try to measure God to a human standard and you will fall short. Number two, God owes no man anything. You know, all of you are in debt of some sort today. You say, no, I got all my bills paid. You're still in debt. You're a debtor to Christ. You owe Christ. You can't pay it, but you owe him. You know, we borrow money and we get a payment. We get a statement book. People get it for their homes. And aren't you excited to get it? And it says your last payoff date's 30 years from the day you signed the contract. And you're like, wow. Most people never get it. You're in debt until that payment date. You're still in debt to Christ. You're going to be in debt to Christ for all of eternity. There is never going to be a day where you're going to walk before the throne of God and say to Christ, I have now paid all of my debt. Lord, I've made the last payment. You're only going to be there because of the free grace and the free mercy of God. That's it. That's the only reason you're standing there. You're not going to be, you will not stay and stand before the Lord and say, Lord, did you see all that I did? Did you see how many messages I preached for us preachers? Did you see how much I studied? Did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? It's not even going to enter into the thought. All the preachers in the world are not going to be sitting in the box seats. The theologians of the world are not going to be held up in higher regard. They're all going to be bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ, saying worthy is the land that was slain before the foundation of the world. We're not going to have anything to stand on. We're not going to, be able to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Thirdly, about knowing the mind of the Lord, all things were made for God's glory. You were made for God's glory. Your redemption is for God's glory. You being a child of God is for God's glory. We must ascribe everything to his glory and remove yourself from debating with God. When you debate with God, you are attempting to rob God of his deserved glory. And then the final thought I want to give us, we're going, to, we're going a little long this morning, and we're going to, there's no way around it. So get a little bit more comfortable. Verse 34 and 36, the ending. I want you the independence of God. The independence of God. It is number one, it's entirely from man. God is not dependent upon man for anything. You said, preacher, you just said we are to, to display his glory, not out of dependence. God would be God without a single human being on this planet. God's glory would be revealed without a single person speaking of it. I started off by telling you what is praise. God would still be praised even if there wasn't a single human voice praising God. He would still be praised. The problem is we have brought God down that have made him dependent upon us. I can't tell you how many times in the last week I've heard Don't hinder God. Don't prevent God from doing it. You're stopping God from doing what he could be doing. God's not doing this because you're not doing this. And I'm saying that is not proper theology. Man has never nor will ever hinder God from doing anything that he has set out to do. It's not happening. Now, we can disobey him. Let's call it what it really is. You're not hindering him. You're just disobedient. You're not keeping God from accomplishing his will. You're just simply disobeying your responsibility to live for him. Plain and simple. If we continue to preach a God who's dependent upon man, we will continue to see the slide of the churches that we see today that are sliding into an abyss where all they can handle are a couple of jingles and a poem. Because that is literally what their acknowledgement of God is. They think God is just dependent upon them. God can't move. God can't send revival. God can't do this. There are people that even use verses of Scripture that says, if we humble ourselves and pray, God will send revival. He's not depending upon your prayer to send revival. It's a response of what we should be doing. But if you try to tell people across the country, God's not sending revival because people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, you're preaching a paper God. That's not why. If God wants to send revival across this nation, it would would come on like a storm and nobody would be able to stop it. Paul's already told us there's a day coming when the greatest revival in history is going to be when the eyes of the Jews are opened. God is not dependent upon man. Who's been his counselor? Do you know how many times in my life I've needed counsel? I need counsel right now in my life, personally. I need real counsel. I can't tell God, God, let me give you a little bit of advice here. Let me tell you what I think you're doing wrong. Let me tell you what I think you need to be doing at our church. Let me, think, let me tell you what I think you need to be doing in my life. Who's been his counselor? Nobody. How can you counsel someone you don't even know his mind? You don't know his ways. You don't know his judgments. You don't know his wisdom. You don't know his knowledge. How can you counsel somebody? If I'm the counselor, I'm going to go to better know something about me. And who's been my greatest counselor? It's the Lord himself. He doesn't always tell me what I want to hear. But who's been God's counselor? Nobody. Who's known what God's plan really is? what his decrees are, why he does what he does. Who's counseled him as to how they ought to be done? Who tells God what his purposes ought to look like? No, God is perfectly independent. He is exalted above the direction of any man. Man has never directed God to do anything. Verse 35, or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. In other words... Who does God owe payback to? Simple way of putting it. <laughs> Who does God owe to? The answer very simply is none. Nobody's ever given anything to God. That's why the danger of God seeing our works or God letting man make the decisions fully because God has not, is not in debt to any. He doesn't pay back anyone. For their good works. Men can do nothing that places God under an obligation. Remember, I gave you that crude illustration about the mortgage note? You're under an obligation. They have this thing that they do if you don't pay it. It's called foreclosure. And by the way, you can't fight it. They'll change your locks on, they'll kick you out. You'll you'll come home one day and you'll say, Look, I'm not paying that. Keep doing that. You'll come home and you won't be able to get in. There won't be. There's no obligation with God. God is not obligated to any man. Men are justified on the ground, not of their own merit, but on the merit of Christ. They're not sanctified by their own power or the strength of their own will, but the Spirit of God. They've been chosen. They've been called into eternal life, not on the grounds of anything that's in them, but according to God's eternal purposes. That's what makes God, God. Man has no merit. Man has no power. His hopes rest in the sovereignty of God alone. So what's that lead us to conclusion? We say all the time, God is the only author of salvation. He's the only author of redemption. If God has to save you because of what you do, that makes God obligated to you, and that is not biblical. Who hath given to God? Who shall have recompensed unto him? And then Paul brings us to this wonderful conclusion. Here's the answer For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. All things. The reason why man can put God under no obligation at all is that God is within himself all in all. Another thing that no man can say about himself. You cannot say, I am my own all in all. To be your own all in all means you have to even be the source of your own life. You've did nothing to bring your own life into this world. You had no choice in who your parents would be. You have no choice in how long you will live. This is God. This is God's plan. You are not your own source. God has no source. He is the all in all. He's the source. He's the means. He's the end. By him, everything is. They are through his power, through his wisdom, his goodness. Everything in this life is working towards the goodness and the providences and the purposes of God. If you compare man to God, you're dealing with something that is totally vain. That's man. Man is vanity. He can dress himself up nice. He can look acceptable. He can even look like he has the power. But according to God or compared with God, he has nothing. Human knowledge, human power are nothing but a sham when they're put into the glory of God. You compare the character of God to the character of man, it's really, there's no comparison. God is sinless, man is sin. Okay, God is sinless, man is sin. Complete opposites. So Paul tells us this, all comprehending all these things, comprehending all that's been taught doctrinally, all that's been reminded, the humility that the sinner ought to have in every age, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. that have all their hopes in one person, one person only. Jesus Christ is the source of everything that's good. The only source of good. Fallen man, there is no merit, there is no ability. Salvation, all of grace. Sanctification, all of grace. Election, all of grace. All things are for God's grace according to God's grace and for his glory. And there's what Paul concludes with. To whom? Be glory forever. Amen. This is the praise. In these verses, Paul reminds us of the impossibility of comprehending God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's judgment, God's mind. Don't ever foolishly try to put God in a mold. Don't ever try to put God in a way that you can say, now, if you'll just look at the God here in this mold I have for you, you will have a full comprehension of who God is. Don't do that. If you want to know who God is, pick up this book and read it and pray and listen to the Holy Spirit of God as he gives discernment and he gives wisdom. The most modern thing that's happening today, and it's, it's, it is picking up steam, is people saying they have something beyond the book, that God has spoken to them something that is apart from this book, and that is false, false, false. Everything God wants you to know is in this book. And there if none of you, including myself, who will ever master this book. People often say, well, what can I read in place of the Bible? And I ask them the question, have you mastered the Scriptures? Nobody's dared yet say, yes, I've mastered it. I've had people people standing on the edge of almost suggesting I've learned all there is to know. They've been real close to it. Our response ought to be not, hey, I know everything there is about God. I know everything who He is. It's a response should be praise. Praise God that He didn't make it, that you had to fully understand Him before you could be redeemed. Because if that was the case, you'd never be redeemed. Praise God you didn't have to fully understand the true depth of your depravity before you were converted, because you and I still don't get it. We still don't realize how sinful we are. It runs so deep. Our sin will never find the bottom of how sinful we really are. Don't ever try to mold God into what his ways are, his designs, what you think he ought to do, what you think he will do, what he should have done, what I'd like for him to do, or what he does It will be right if, when you think you have all the answers and you think you understand all the ways of God, all you reveal is your ignorance and your foolishness. And that's all of us. Our response should be what Paul does. Oh, the depth of his riches. It's praise. The knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It's a doxology. That's the God of the Bible. Next week, as we get into Romans 12, we'll see exactly now into the more practical side. How do we live the Christian life, knowing what we know about God. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll be dismissed into a time of fellowship. And we'll spend just a few moments here as we pray, praising the Lord for all that he's done and all he continues to do. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness. And Lord, we thank you for the mercy that has been extended to us. And Lord, although it would sound wonderful To be able to say, we fully comprehend all that you are. We know, humanly speaking, that's just not true. But we take just a few moments to praise you for who you have told us and shown us that you are. Lord, if all we had ever received, if all we'd ever received was to be brought into the body of Christ, that would be enough. Lord, we realize our lives are not always the way that we thought or the way that we anticipated they should be. We question the sovereignty and your decrees and your purposes and your direction. But Lord, may you help us to see today that our response should not be a questioning. Our response should be a praise. Praise that you are in complete control and that all that you do is good. It is always right. We never question your ways, even when we don't understand them. Father, strengthen our hearts around this matter. Lord, each one of us here today, and even those that are not with us today, we need this. We need these reminders. We need to be reminded over and over again of who we are and who God is and realize God has no dependence upon us whatsoever. We thank you and praise you for all these things, Lord. I pray now that our time of fellowship will be encouraging and edifying. And Lord, may it be glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray and for his sake, amen.